Well, I want to um, begin reading here from a, a book. Um, this is Paul Tripp's newest book out. It's called Suffering. And uh, he writes this. He says, It was a surprise by an unwelcomed visitor, like it is for so many sufferers. I didn't know that day that Mr. Hardship would knock on my door, barge his way in, and take residence in the most intimate rooms of my life. And I didn't have any idea how his presence would fundamentally change so many things in the long run. I watched him go room to room through my life, rearranging everything, wondering what things would be like if and when he finally left. If I could have, I would have evicted this unwanted stranger, but I failed at all my attempts to boot him out the door, deny that he had taken up residence in my life. I, I spent way too much time trying to figure out why he had knocked on my door and why he had chosen this particular moment But I never got clear answers to my questions. Once I realized that I couldn't kick Mr. Hardship out of my life, I I gave myself to trying to understand how to live with him or around him. His presence made me feel like an actor in a drama where everyone had a script but me. I felt unprepared and unable, but not just the day after he first entered, but day after day after day. Sure, I had known that Mr. Hardship was out there, and I had heard the stories about how he had entered other people's doors, but somehow I just didn't think it would happen to me. Embarrassment washed over me as I thought of the silly platitudes and empty answers that I had casually given people when they'd been caught in the confusing drama that I was now in. And I thought about how foolish I... I'd been to think that this unwanted stranger who somehow, someway enters everyone's door would for some reason omit mine. Because I did not have the power or control to make Mr. Hardship leave, I ran to the place where I've always found wisdom, hope, and rest of heart. I ran to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and in so doing, into the arms of my Savior. As I dove into the narrative of the gospel, which is the core message of God's word, I realized something profoundly important and wonderfully comforting. I wasn't unprepared after all. The message of God's sovereign control over me and my world, the gospel's honesty about life in this fallen world, the comfort of the right here, right now presence and grace of our Savior, and the insight into the spiritual war that rages in my heart had prepared me well for the entrance and presence of this unwelcome stranger. I'm no longer angry or discouraged that Mr. Hardship entered my door unexpectedly that day. Although I still struggle with pain and weakness that he has left with me, I know that I'm better off because of his presence. No, I don't like the travail of pain or loss any more than you do, but in my suffering, a miraculous thing happened. Mr. Hardship became a tool of my Savior to produce very good things in me, things that I am sure could not have been produced in any other way. And... um, Paul Tripp goes on, speaks in his, I've not read it, not got it, just kind of came out. (coughs) But it's everything I know of Paul Tripp. He's going to drive you to the gospel, drive you to think about suffering. Well, my message this morning, we're going to be talking about trials. We're going to be talking about troubles. It's entitled, Trust Through Troubles, or Trusting Through Troubles. It's what Paul calls us to do in Romans chapter 12 and verse 12. If you haven't done so already, I invite you to open your Bibles to Romans 12 and uh, 
Verse 12, you didn't bring a Bible. We're talking page 948 of the Pew Bibles. Really encourage you. If you don't have a Bible, take a Bible. Open it up because we'll be going in Romans uh, around just a little bit to catch and understand what this, what this means. But as is the pattern um, in recent weeks at Rock Valley Bible Church, we've been going through verse by verse by verse uh, through Romans 12 because of how important Romans 12 is to all of, of Romans. And this morning we're going to address the issue of trials. And as Paul Tripp points out, when it comes down to the one thing that will help you through your trials, it's the gospel of Christ. Just thinking through and understanding of all that Christ has done for us. That we who deserve condemnation, we find mercy in and through the work of Jesus Christ. Through His work on the cross, dying for our sins in our place. And as you apply the good news in your trials... It will give you hope in the pain. It will give you strength to endure. And it will give you encouragement to press on. And of course, the gospel is the backdrop of our our text this morning. As you all recall, chapter 12 is is the so what chapter of all of Romans. I mean, it's a chapter that comes after a long explanation of the gospel. It's the chapter filled with practical application. More than 40 commands are coming in this chapter. It's the chapter that really flows out of the reality of the gospel. It's how we should respond to the gospel message that Paul was so eager to preach and to preach in Rome and to preach on beyond in Spain. If you remember the first three chapters of Romans describes the extent of our sin that none of us are righteous and all of us are under the just condemnation of God. Even the best of us are condemned according to the law because as Romans 3:20 says by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. It's not the works that, that justify us, regardless of how righteous you are. The, the law gives us a knowledge of sin. It shows us our sin. And then chapter 4, Paul just opens up the glories of the gospel that, that by faith in Christ we're made righteous with God. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so also we believe God. We can trust in the saving work of Christ and we trust Him. He makes us righteous. And that's the gospel. When we believe in Christ, all of our sins are taken away. He, he will remember it no more, and He is at peace with us, Romans 5, 1. And then chapters 6 and 7, Paul talks about how it works itself out in sanctification, how we should purge sin from our lives. Because how can we who are dead to sin still live in it? And yet he's true about the lifelong struggle, the reality of that's in chapter 7. Chapter 8 explains how we're secure in God's love for us, and chapters 9 through 11 speak about how secure we are In his sovereign love for us. And then in chapter 12, Paul paints a picture of what it means for individuals and what it means for a church body to live together in light of the gospel. And it all turns on the mercy of God. Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This this verse in your Bible, if you write in your Bible, I encourage you to, should be should be marked around, highlighted, squared, boxed out. Like, like this is the key verse in all of Romans as it spins and turns us to how it is that we should live. And, and even there, the mercies of God are the key phrase even within chapter 12 and verse 1. And God's mercy is implication of how it is that we, we live and interact with the world. We're not to be conformed to the world, verse 2. And we who know and experience God's mercy cannot be conformed to the world because the, the world who knows nothing about the saving mercy of Christ. They're just different than us. Those who don't know Jesus and those who know Jesus, there's like this huge chasm. And, and, and we ought not to be like them and they can't be like us. 
They need to know Jesus and then have their minds conformed to that. And God's mercy on our lives has implications on our attitude for li- with life. And we who know and experience God's mercy will be humble people. That's what verse 3 speaks about. And we will use our gifts then to serve others. What verses 4 through 8 are about. And then in the beginning of verse 9, Paul is giving some, some, not necessarily call them random commands, but a lot of commands about love and, and honor and zeal and service and today trials. So let, let's begin. Verse 9. Let love be genuine, Paul writes. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And this morning we're looking at verse 12. But last morning, last Sunday morning, we looked at verse 11, which is in many ways similar to verse 12 and similar in terms of, of structure. I mean, there's, there's similar there that, that each verse, verse 11 and verse 12, both have three commands. Look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Same, same feel, verse 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And each of these commands are just short and to the point. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Just bang, bang, bang. And furthermore, if you, if you look closely at these and study them a bit, I think you'll, you'll see that they all center around one theme. Last week, it was the theme of service to the Lord. It was the third command in verse 11. It's where it just says, serve the Lord. The other two describe how we should serve. Not slothful, but with zeal. Zealously serving the Lord. And this week, I think it centers around the theme of tribulation, which is the middle command of these three. Be patient in tribulation. And the other two describe how we should be patient with hope and with prayer. The first command tells us our attitude in our trials. Should be joyful, joyful in its hope. Second command tells us our resolve in these trials, that we should be patient. The third command tells us the strength that we have in these trials is, is prayer. So let's dig in this morning. I have three points to my outline this morning. Three commands, three points. It simply makes sense there. My first point is this. Rejoice. That's what Paul says. He says, rejoice in hope. The Bible calls us to be joyful people. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. The Psalms call us to rejoice in the Lord. Psalm 100 and verse 1, make a joyful noise unto the Lord all the earth. That is a noise that we make to God in our worship to Him ought to be joyful. We are commanded, Psalm 100 and verse 2, serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. We're to serve the Lord with gladness. We're to to come into His presence with joyful singing. Psalm 95, oh come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. To the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. We are commanded to be joyful. That's what here in Romans we're talking about. Paul is calling us to rejoice. But I think it's important here to realize what he's calling us to rejoice in. He's not calling us in this verse to rejoice in God's faithfulness in the past. Nor is he calling us to rejoice in God's goodness in the present. Rather, he's calling us to rejoice in the hope we have of the future. Now, it's not that we shouldn't hope or rejoice in God and what he's done in the past. 
or what God is doing in the present. I mean, those things should give us to praise, lead us to praise. I mean, you just consider Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. And Psalm 107 is, is all about people who have been saved out of their, their difficult circumstances. And now they're to come and give thanks to the Lord for what he did in the past in their lives to redeem them. Psalm 103 is, is a psalm about what, what God is doing. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. These are the benefits He forgives all your iniquity. He heals your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with steadfast love and mercy and satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. We should rejoice and be glad and thank the Lord for what he is doing for us. But our call here in Romans 12, 12 is to rejoice in what God will do in the future. That's what hope is about. Hope is a future word. And our joy today is for the hope of tomorrow. And it's right here, I believe, that makes these three commands of verse 12 linked together around this theme of troubles because Paul's focusing our, his attention upon, upon the future, presumably because it's not so good in the present to rejoice in, but we need to rejoice in the future. And that's exactly the case when you're going through troubles and trials. It's that middle command says, be patient in tribulation. And what Paul is saying, I believe, is this, when he says, Rejoice in hope. He's saying, look to the future and look there to the the promise and rejoice in the hope of what the future will bring when the trial is done or when you've been refined by that trial or when something comes that is better than today. And either that is down the road a a month from now or three months from now or a year from now or ten years from now or even in eternity when God will ultimately make all things right. But it's it's a future thing. We should rejoice today in the hope when we're going through trials. And that's exactly what James says. You think about this context, you think about James. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Strange thing to say. Count it all joy when you meet the various kinds of trials that you might go about meeting. I mean, when trials come, that is the very moment where it's difficult to rejoice when a loved one dies or when you lose your job or when you get in a bad car crash or when you're diagnosed with cancer or when your child turns away from the faith or when you're ridiculed for the faith or when 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 people are are pounding down upon you for your faith that's a hard time to rejoice and yet james tells us to count it all joy when you meet with these various trials of life But then he goes on to explain how it is and why it is that we should count it all joy. It has to do with our future hope and what the trials will do for us. He says in James 1, 3, because you know, so count all joy when you face these trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect so you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, in the day of trouble, you can rejoice Because you know what this trouble will bring for you in your life, it's going to bring a steadfastness. It's going to test you. It's going to strengthen you. And this steadfastness then will lead you to maturity. And so you know as this trial comes, God is going to use it in your life to create maturity in your life. And in that maturity, that that future maturity, that hope for maturity, you can rejoice today. 
I mean, isn't that the case? Isn't the case on the back end of your trials that you look back upon the growth in your life? When you, when you go through some trial that's, that's hard and that's far from pleasant, when you look back, you say, wow, God sustained me through that trial. Or you look back and you say, wow, God taught me a lot of things through that trial. Or you look back and you see, wow, my, my faith has been strengthened through that trial because I have seen God be all sufficient for me. When you look back, you rejoice at all the Lord has done in your life and the lives of others through that particular trial. The Psalm 119 verse 67 says this, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. The psalm is saying this, I was drifting, I was coasting along, just cruising in life, not, not much care in the world. I, I, I went astray. And then the affliction came and the trial came. And it smacked me up the head. It smacked me like cold water on you, like smelling salts that, whoa, and you're back to reality. I need the Lord. I need to keep his words. I need to follow after your ways. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word because there's been this divine working in, in his life. When Paul experienced a thorn in the flesh, he prayed on three occasions that God would remove it from him. And God said, no. Paul says, it's painful. I want it out. He says, no. He said, please, it would help me. He said, no. And then God's answer comes back. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul responded and said, okay, so if my trial, this thorn in his flesh, whatever that was. It's not really important at this moment what it is, but something that hurt, something he didn't like, something he prayed that would be rid of. Then God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Then Paul responded with joy. He says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. In other words, what Paul could rejoice in his trial because he knew what his trial would produce. And in this case, he knew his trial would produce weakness and his weakness would produce less power for Paul. But what? More power for God. And in that, he said, I will boast all the more gladly my weaknesses because of the power of God. And he just said, boasting in his weaknesses, right? Boasting, that's the same as rejoicing. That's why he rejoiced, and that's why we can rejoice in our trials, is because we have a hope of something better. We can see through it to see what it's going to produce in us. And that's exactly, by the way, what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. Turn back just a few chapters to Romans chapter 5. I want to read 1 through 5. We're going to focus on 3 through 5 because it sounds a lot like James. But Paul says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a great sentence of the gospel. By faith in God, we're justified. That is that we are made vindicated totally in the sight of God. And because we're vindicated, we have peace with God. Then he goes on. He says, through him, then, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And there he is. He's talking about, I have have faith in God, I'm trusting. We have access to God's grace by, by trusting Him. And here it is. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. right? Hoping that we're going to obtain that. Hoping we're going to see the glory of God. Hoping we're going to be part of that. And then he goes on to talk more about sufferings and how they combine with hope. 
He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. So we're rejoicing in hope and we're rejoicing in our sufferings. I think those are the similar things he's talking about in our text today. Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul says he rejoices in his sufferings. How can it be that he's rejoicing in his sufferings? Well, all because of what they produce. They produce endurance. And that's, that's the principle of exercise, right? You exercise your body and you beat it down. And what, what happens to your body? You come back stronger, right? You, you run a mile today and you can run a mile and a half tomorrow. And then maybe a rest day. And then you can run two miles. And then you're up to two and a half miles. And then, then you rest a little bit. And you're coming back stronger and stronger. It's your suffering. It's your beating it down today. You, you lift 100 pounds today. And then you'll be able to lift more tomorrow. And you'll be able to lift more the next day after that. And when it comes to our faith, the same thing, right? We suffer a bit today. We're stretched. And we're going to come back in our faith stronger with endurance. Endurance then creates character. What? What's character but right response in all situations? I mean, that's someone's character. How do they respond when things are difficult? Right? In fact, when things are hard and when things are tough, that's when character really shines. It's, it's, when, it's when all is against you. The character will do the right thing. It's what Job said, Job 23, verse 10. He knows the way that I take. And when he has tried me, I shall come out like gold. Right? When he tests me, going to come out on the other side a golden character it's what indeed he did and character then produces his hope see solid character isn't just for living today character is is living for integrity it's through the ups and downs of life character then produces this hope because you know that you stand firm on the lord and is the hope of the glory of god even when when all seems lost and here's the, the connection in our, our text. We see in verse 2 this hope of the glory of God. And then also we see this hope that, that comes from character, that's, that's firm and steadfast. All that sufferings bring to us. And so church family, just write, write down here is this first point, right? When facing trials in your life, this is the perspective that all of us must have. We need to rejoice And not see the trials as such a a bad thing, but see them as a good thing because of what they're going to do for us in our lives. We need to bring this perspective that God is working something out in my life that's refining me or going to help me. And yes, it's being broken down what a trial is or the the tribulation. Literally, the word is a a flip test. It's It's a pressing. It's a squeezing. As we are squeezed down, we'll come out better on the other side. And that's why we rejoice in hope. Well, let's look at our, our second point. Simply this, be patient. So back to Romans twelve twelve. be patient in tribulation. Literally, Paul here says, remain under tribulation. Notice I think the NAS, I think it says, endure the tribulation. That's the, the same thing. Be patient, remain under, endure it. I mean, what, what's our tendency when trials come? We want to get rid of it, right? When, when Paul Tripp's talking about Mr. Hardship coming at the door, he's like, how can I get rid of this guy? Can I like open the door and kick him out? And Mr. Hardship says, no. <laughs> well, can I maybe live to another residence? Well, Mr. Hardship would just follow you to the, the next residence. 
Well, can I kind of dodge him or kind of miss him? No, it's coming and you've got it. We try to to run away and escape and and get out. But Paul's admonition here is to lean in. Lean into trials. Embrace them for what they are and work them through. And the idea here of patience is how trials often work. When trials come, they aren't instant refinement. You know, it's a little bit like the, the refining process that you refine a little bit and then you refine a little bit more and then you refine a little bit more. You skip off the grass, the dross, and you get a little bit more, a little bit more. So maybe when you crack an egg, you're trying to get that yolk out, right? And all that white stuff, whatever the white stuff is called, and you just kind of go back and forth, back and forth. It takes some time, takes some patience, and not all just done at once. And that's the idea here with being patient through your tribulation and this, is, I think, is precisely where we see a link with the previous command. Because when the trials come, our tendency isn't to rejoice. So Paul must tell us to rejoice when the trials come at the hope. Re- rejoice in the future day. And when trials come, it's not our tendency to endure. And so Paul says you need to be patient in tribulation. And it's here, right, where we, we get a sense of, of what tribulations are. Because for the most part, they're not quick, hard-hitting things. They're, they're not something that comes fast in your life. You deal with it in a day or two, and then it's gone. When he says, be patient, you need to endure this for a long time. So I'm thinking about things that, that are for a long time. I think it's what Paul has in view. Things like, like long-term chronic back pain. Some of you may have. No surgery can resolve it. Maybe vertebrae are too thin or it's too close to spinal or something. Long-term chronic pain. Or Paul has in view of the neighbor with whom you have contentions and your neighbor's not moving anytime soon and you wish he would. And you think, well, maybe we should move because our neighbor's such a pain in the neck. Maybe he's thinking the same thing about you. But it's just a contention and problem or or Paul has in view of the bankruptcy that takes many, many years to dig out of the bankruptcy to finally get a good credit rating once again. Uh, Paul has in view the, the co-worker who riddles you for your faith, just pounds you for it. Can you believe that? Ridicules you, maybe brings others along without support from your boss. And he's not being fired anytime soon. Maybe Paul has uh, in mind the, uh, the trampoline accident, which leaves your child paralyzed, paralytic for the rest of their lives, dealing with wheelchairs, and dealing with, with bags. Maybe he has in view a brother or sister as a drug addiction, who sometimes is out, but then comes back in. It's like, come back in looking for help. And maybe you help for a little bit, maybe you don't, maybe you're hard, but just this constant coming up, oh, here it comes again, here it comes again. Or maybe Paul is in view of something like cancer, which means long months of chemotherapy or other natural remedies, which <coughs> all of which don't have a good prognosis, but it just means a deterioration of health for the next several years and potential death. Maybe he has in view a house fire, which leaves you homeless for months 
And so then you think about how to, how to rebuild or how to reestablish and get all your things in order again. Or maybe it's childhood abuse, which leaves its mark forever. Or maybe it's a child born with Down syndrome, which means parenting challenges the rest of your life. Maybe it means a, a wayward child who's off sowing his, his wild oats and is always on your mind. You just can't get that child off. Maybe it's the, the stroke that debilitates the loved one, which means years of hands-on care until they pass away. Maybe he's got the marriage that's been damaged by infidelity, which takes years to, to work through and establish trust once again. Maybe it means your basement that's been flooded. It's mold in the house and causing you some chronic sickness. I mean, those are just, all of you, you just think about your lives. There's just different things going on in your lives. And Paul says, patiently endure them. Lean into them. Don't run away. Walk through them. Trusting that God has something for you through them. And what he's also saying here is that, that don't do that with a, a frown. I mean, that's the whole point of the first command. Rejoice in hope. It's the attitude of joy that must come into these things. Now, again, that's not just a glib happiness, okay? Not fake, but a genuine joy and re- rejoicing. And how strong a testimony is where someone can say that trial came And I thank God for that trial because that trial was such a a good thing in my life. Now, those in Rome were no strangers to tribulations and sufferings. I mean, this was the reality. Look look back at chapter 8. Towards the end of the chapter, Paul talks about trials that they were experiencing or maybe they would experience in the future. And he's trying to prep, trying to prep them for that. And so I, I think about... You know, people often say, well, if, you, if you're not in a trial now, it's just because you got out of a trial or it's because the trial's coming. And uh, particularly you children, this, this would be a good lesson to learn. You need to learn it now when you're young, that when the day of the trial comes, you're steady and secure in this, that you know that you can endure in that day because of what Paul says is the love of Christ, which is sufficient to give you strength to overcome your trials. Romans eight thirty five. Here's the question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you notice the suffering words there? They were there in in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation. It's a suffering word, same one that Paul is using. But all these other words are in that same, same sphere of meaning. Distress. Persecution. Famine, nakedness, danger, sword, just all types of tribulations that are, that are coming that way. And, and to all of that, Paul would say, endure it, be patient, go through it, work it through, lean in on it. Let the Lord teach you. Let the Lord be your guide. Let the Lord be your trust. Or as we put it this way, trust through troubles. Beyond mere endurance, Paul is saying that we should conquer them. Look at verse 37. It's kind of the the response. Even as he says in verse 36, we're being killed all the day long regarding a sheep to be slaughtered. That's pretty bad. 
being killed all the day long. Okay, don't know exactly what that means. How like like today I'm here, but t- I'm, I'm being killed all today, and I'm being killed all tomorrow. I'm being killed all the next day. Um, we regard as sheep to be slaughtered. Just just whatever's coming upon them is bad. But he says that nothing's going to separate us from the love of God in Christ. And then he says, in verse 37, in all these things, the tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This conqueror means that we that we win, that, that we win through our trials, that the trials don't come and smack us down and defeat us and destroy us. Rather, the idea is that we we win and so you say, what's going to sustain us through these troubles? God's love. The gospel is going to sustain us. Look at verse 37. How do we become more than conquerors? It's through Him who loved us. See, verse 35 began with this question, Who shall separate us from the love of God, love of Christ? Nobody. How are we going to conquer? Through the love of God. And he's sure, verse 38 and 39, that nothing is going to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That is the glorious message of the gospel. That's what Paul Tripp's talking about. Says the gospel is going to give you power to keep you through your trials. That God's love for us is so great that, that any problem that occurs in our lives, right, from persecutions of people, the famines that come upon the land, is no match for the love of God. God's love for us is so strong. There's nothing that can happen, nothing that no, anyone can do to us. Nothing that can happen that's ever going to separate us from that love. Nothing, nobody. We are secure in that love. And being secure in that love gives us the the power then to overcome. Gives us the strength to endure. And we need to look no further than the love that God has demonstrated in Jesus. Romans 5.8 God shows His love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst is when Christ came and gave us his best. It's the gospel that will strengthen us to endure through the trials of life. And we can look to examples in the Bible that helped endure some sufferings. I think about Jeremiah. Not that Jeremiah. (coughs) Different Jeremiah. The, The struggles that he faced were immense. But he persevered through them. He, he leaned into them. Can you consider, he was beaten with rods and put in the stocks. Jeremiah 20, verses 1 and 2. He was sentenced to death. Jeremiah 26, verse 11. The priests and the prophets said to the officials and to all the people, This man deserves the sentence of death because he has prophesied against this city, as you have heard with your own ears. He prophesied what God told him. He told him the truth. And he, they said he deserved to die. He was left to die, in fact, in the mud at the bottom of a cistern. They just kind of threw him in there, which is all, you know, wet from water and it dried out. And he's sitting there in the, in the bottom of a well, in the mud, sinking, ready to die without nourishment and any help at all. He was accused. He's called a liar. Just simply doing what God had, had told him to do. Walking in God's ways, faced all of these troubles and trials, and yet through it all, he remained faithful to the Lord, enduring great hardships that come along with living a godly life. Jeremiah is the fulfillment of 2 Timothy 3, 12. It says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Jeremiah desired to live a godly life. 
and he was persecuted for it. But he endured. He, he didn't waver. He was faithful to the Lord. Another great biblical example is Job. He had everything. He had health, wealth, and prosperity. He had ten happy children. He was a righteous man of integrity who walked with God. And then one day he lost it all. Storms and fire and invading armies came and wiped away all his wealth. And soon after that, he lost his health, being covered with loathsome sores from the sole of his feet to the crown of his head. He was a despicable-looking man at that point. Pursuing out of his body just pain and sores. And on top of that, he had no family to help him. And the only family he had was his wife. And his wife said, Job, curse God and die His friends were no comfort to him. They simply came and cast condemnation upon him, telling him that he was suffering because of his sin. He needs to find the sin that was wrong in his life that brought all this calamity upon him. And he never knew back behind the scenes, it was God who provoked Satan to inflict this on him, demonstrating that in Job is going to be an example of my perfect patience. And only after a long time of suffering did the Lord restore his health and his fortunes. When Job realized the position of God in his own position. And James calls us to think of the prophets. He calls us to think about Job. He calls us to imitate their faith. James 5, 10-11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. And we just looked at one. We could have looked at others. We could have looked at Isaiah. could have looked at others who were just faithful about things. He says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So we look to these people, we see how they press through and we can look to those examples and be encouraged by those examples. And parents, when you suffer and going through difficult times of trials, you will be setting examples for your children too, for them to look at and to see what it is like to suffer. But we can look to Jeremiah, we can look to the prophets, we can look to Job. We, we can also, probably most of all, look to Jesus. It says in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. In other words, let's see all those people who have run this race, who have endured through the sufferings of trial and considered that the glories of heaven are worth more than the sufferings of the earth. In fact, even that's uh, the testimony of Moses, is, is that Moses, right, considered just the, the reproaches of Egypt. He said, um, Hebrews eleven twenty six. 26, he, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So he chose to be mistreated by the people of God rather to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin in the, in the Pharaoh's palace. God used him mightily. We should look to him. We should look to all of these others. But also, then the writer of Hebrews says, let's look to Jesus. So let's look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was our model example for one who endured patience, patiently when facing tribulation. And the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, right, you're, you're not being killed for your sin. Jesus went the uttermost. He died. 
he suffered that much. And yet, while, while suffering, he, he uttered no threats. While being reviled, he didn't revile back, but he kept entrusting himself to God. First Peter chapter 2. And we're to look to him as the model sufferer, the one who was patient in his tribulation, how he endured in his tribulation, and how we need to be. Well, last point, we should pray. So rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, and pray. You know how you know trust in troubles is these three, these three things, right? Rejoicing in the future benefits, whether the future thing is going to create or the future glory of God, right? Patiently enduring things and praying all along the way. It says here to be constant in prayer. The idea here is just attentive to prayer, praying all the time. You know, the scriptures speak a lot about how it is we ought to pray always. First Thessalonians 5.17 says we ought to pray always, along with giving thanks always. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 2 says that we need to devote yourselves to prayer. Be devoted to it. Be committed to it. Ephesians 6.18 says that with all prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, we just need to keep making our requests known to God. Constantly praying. Constantly praying. And yet, that's a problem with Christians. That we often don't pray. In fact, Jesus said to tell a parable Encouraging men and, and teaching men that they ought always to pray and not grow faint. Luke 18, verse 1. He told them a parable of the fact that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And then he told the story about this judge and this widow. And this widow had been wronged and was seeking justice, seeking what was due her, what was right here. And this judge kept turning her away and turning her away and turning her away. And yet, the judge even said, he was an ungodly judge, unjust judge. Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because of this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. So she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And when Jesus then is teaching this parable about, about praying, how we ought to pray always, you know what he says? Who, who does he point out in this parable? He says, think about the judge. Hear what the unrighteous judge says. The judge says, you're going to beat me down, I'm going to give it to her. But he says, will not God give justice to his elect when they cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And that's the whole idea here of Romans chapter 12 and verse 12. We need to be constant in prayer. We need to be praying day and night constantly to the Lord. Just daily dependence upon the Lord when going through your trials. And, 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 and in Luke chapter 18 about Jesus here, he said they're going to cry to him day and night, pleading for justice, pleading for help, pleading for mercy. God says, I'm so unlike that unrighteous judge did, but I'm a different, I'm a righteous judge. I'm a merciful judge. I'll give justice to you. And in the Psalms, speak of this often. I just want to read just a, a little bit from two of them for you. But just the, the constant idea of a, of a constant prayer. Psalm 86, beginning of, beginning of verse 1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Going through trouble, going through trial, going through difficulty. I'm poor and needy. Preserve my life, he says, verse 2. 
for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. You can just picture the, the he needs saving from something. He's got some kind of trial going on. He's needy and he's praying to God and he's praying just for grace. He's praying in verse three, be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry out all the day, all the day long. This trial is ever before him and he's constantly lifting it up before the Lord. It's how to trust God through troubles is trusting all the day long or Psalm 88 and verse one. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. God, you're you're the God of my salvation. You're you're the one who's going to save me. And what's he crying? Crying out day and night because he sees his need. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength like one set loose from the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lays heavy upon me and you overwhelm me with all of your waves." And he goes on and on to speak about how, what a difficult circumstance he's in. The, the companions and, and people are just a, against him. And he's going through his trial. What's he doing? Day and night crying out before the Lord. Now, what's so interesting about, about this verse here in Romans chapter 12 is that you hardly need to say anything. Because when trials are coming like this, the godly one will respond rightly and trust to God and just will pray all the time. You, have you ever been in a trial and found yourself just constantly praying? Just, here's this trial, God, I'm, I'm praying just constantly. You don't need to teach a hungry man how to beg for bread. When you're hungry, this will come naturally and you will beg. And when you really realize and understand the depth of your trials, you will pray. You know, oftentimes there's just an urge. Hey, we gotta, we gotta pray. Let's, let's come and pray. If you saw your need, you would be praying. And sadly, in America, I think oftentimes people aren't praying because it's easy. Well, when things come hard, you'll be praying. Let me tell you, you, you should be praying. And if you're not praying through your trials, it just means you think you can take it on your own, and you've missed all, all that God is trying to do through you is to increase your faith and to make a steadfastness and to create your character and to give your your character produce this hope a hope of the glory of god that you'll see him face to face so that's how we should trust the lord through trials we should rejoice because of the hope we should be patient in enduring it and all the while be lifting up prayers to god constantly and to him so let's pray father i would pray for those even right now going through trials god so many people here in this room and so many trials are being gone through and some are, are public and I know about and some are private and I know not about them. Um, but God, I pray that we would realize that it's, it's your mercy that gives us then the grace to respond in this way. God, I, I pray for the grace of those going through trials today. God, to count it all joy today because of the trials. I know that even in my life, I confess that I, I don't count it all joy in the midst of the trial. I, I count it all joy after the trial. 
And yet the call here is to be rejoicing in the trial. Be rejoicing when the hope is future, not rejoicing when it's past. So I pray that you would give a, a joy to those in trials today. Pray that you give a steadfastness. God, I, I just think about how many times trials turn people away from the Lord because they were expecting health, wealth, and prosperity, and they didn't get it, and so they doubt the Lord. Even read some testimonies this week of those who are like that. They're on top of the world, serving the Lord with great fervor, and then they had difficulties. They saw the harshness of life. They experienced some of that, and they rejected you. They fell away because you didn't provide them everything. And the picture here is that we will have tribulation, but we can be victorious through it. As Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Rejoice because I have overcome the world. And so for those in trials now, God, I pray you give them the strength to endure, to go through. As Paul, in their weakness, God, that you would be strong for them. And I pray as well, O Lord, that you would you would find them praying to you day and night in the waking hours of the day, whenever they're awake, whenever they awake from their sleep, God, that they would cry out to you like that widow did to the judge and that you would be merciful to them. Uh, Father, I also just pray as well for um, just those who are maybe between trials or are, are coming up to a trial. The time to prepare for a trial is today. God, in, in a time of relative peace, in a time when things are going well, knowing that Mr. Hardship is going to knock at the door. And I would pray that they would be ready to take him in, that they would develop convictions now, God, rather than later, so that now they're preparing themselves for the day when the trial comes, because when the trial comes, it's too late to prepare. So I pray that preparation be made so that they could go through these trials in a, in a God-glorifying way, trusting in you with with their whole hearts. Father, I pray especially for children who are here, God, who have, many of whom have grown up in, a, in godly homes, have been taught the Bible a lot, have been loved strongly by their parents, have been provided for and encouraged on. Lord, I pray that you would sink into them the conviction of the day when the, a bigger trial comes. Um, just to say would graduate from their schools and get jobs and marriage and children and try to live on their own. I pray, God, you dig deep into them. Even today, prepare them for that day 20 years from now, 18, 15 years from now, 10 years from now, when the trials would come, that they would stand firm because they stand firm on the rock, that they would be conquerors through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, I thank you for him. And what Jesus did and how he walked through the trials, how he, he God loved his disciples to the uttermost and how he walked and faced the suffering until the end. And so, God, we, we do ultimately look to him for all our strength in these, in these trials because it's not us who, who has the strength. We're not sufficient, but our sufficiency comes from you as we walk through these God-ordained trials that you have for us. God, be glorified in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And before we go, we got one last song that uh, we're going to sing, just uh, an expression, Psalm 62, about expressing how we're, we're trusting in God and in God alone. Just, it is really the heart of application of what, uh, what this text is about. So I, I trust with that preparation for a call to worship that this song will be sung deep from your hearts. And then when they're done, uh, you'll be dismissed. <laughs>